welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we're starting our mini-series. Well, I hope it's going to be a mini-series at some point. <laughs> but we, we're going to talk about patents. Honestly, if you'd asked me this morning, um, do you want to talk about patents and intellectual property law uh, for over an hour, I would have gone, no, I'm okay. But I literally didn't want the interview to end because I was learning so much and it was so interesting. And our interviewee is Shobita Partasarati. She is a professor of public policy and women's studies and also director of science, technology and public policy program at the University of Michigan. My name is Shovita Parthasarathy. I'm a professor of public policy at University of Michigan in the United States. And I do research on politics and policy related to science and technology. So I've done a lot of research on uh, the moral, social, economic dimensions of emerging science and technology, particularly biotech. Um, I um, have also um, done a lot of research and um, written a couple of books and lots of articles on intellectual property and, and patents and both politics and policy related to patents. And uh, more recently, my current research is looking at um, what's called inclusive innovation uh, for specifically in the context of international development, but I'm interested uh, generally in this idea of inclusive innovation, how it's emerged what its benefits and potential drawbacks are um, as a means of thinking about whether and how we can engage in more uh, equitable innovation, equitable science and technology. So before we um, go any further in the topic, um, because this is kind of our first episode, we want to dive in a bit more into the world of uh, copyright and IP. Um, I think what we need, and our listeners maybe as well, I don't know, uh, need a little bit of definition, like what's, what are patents and copyrights? What is this? All of my research has been basically on the invention side of things, which means that I deal primarily with patents and licenses. Um, so I'll just make the distinction between patents and copyrights and then sort of leave copyrights aside. So copyrights, generally speaking, are uh, given for works of art and they are also for lengthy periods of time. There are also um, trademarks. Trademarks are another form of intellectual property which are usually certified by governments or some other kind of collective. Those are for brand names, things like Coca-Cola, for example, are subject to a trademark. And then finally you have patents. Patents are government certifications of invention. They are uh, essentially rights granted by the government that allow the patent holder to have a monopoly for a limited period of time, 20 years at the moment. Um, and I can get into if you're interested in um, why it's 20 years. Um, but but basically, the idea behind a patent originally, long, long ago, uh, was that patents provided inventors with an incentive to innovate and that governments had an interest in encouraging their citizens to innovate. And so uh, governments should provide this kind of a certification. It also was, and this is something that often gets lost in these conversations, but it was also a way to avoid what are called trade secrets. So the idea was a patent, of course, is a physical patent is a document, actually. It is um, a sort of usually kind of highly technical, both in terms of legal, legal technicalities and scientific technicalities, is a document that explains an invention. And the idea was that if you write down what the invention is, then um, other people can read that patent document, just like a publication, and invent beyond it. So it's better than um, keeping how you came up with an invention in your safe somewhere. It actually makes it publicly available. And so the modern patent system 
Um, there was an earlier patent system, but I won't talk too much about that. There, the modern patent system, which emerged basically in the 18th century, um, has essentially had that that structure, which is that the government uh, has offers these rights. It engages in some kind of review process that has shifted over time a little bit, but it engages in some kind of review process. It, it uh, issues these patents, um, and then there are sometimes challenges in the courts to the scope of a patent, and so it's it's a combination usually of the courts and legislatures in a particular jurisdiction and usually in a, at the national level um, who determine what the patent laws are. So that influences, for example, what the standards of patentability are um, and the scope of patentability. Those kinds of things um, are usually de determined by a combination of the courts and legislatures. In Europe, you have the same kind of structure. So these are basically government um, certifications, as I've said a couple of times, determined by the national government. In the European context, you have a European patent office and a European patent organization, and that is basically a pan-governmental organization with multiple member countries. Not all of them are EU member countries. It's slightly different, um, who are part of this European patent organization. And so until for a very long time, that European patent organization uh, engaged in both in searching for prior art. That is, so if you wanted to apply for a patent and you wanted it to be valid in multiple countries uh, that are signatories or members of the European patent organization, you would apply to the EPO as opposed to individual patents in multiple countries. Right, because that would be more expensive and time consuming and, and um, complicated. So here you would apply to the EPO and you would pay a sliding scale fee according to where you wanted a patent granted. And then the, the patent office would search the prior art, that is other patents and publications. It would engage in the technical examination process and then it would grant the patent. And then as soon as it granted the patent, the patent would become valid in all of those member states. And so there are provisions to challenge the patent at the European Patent Office, but also you can do so in the member states. Now the European Patent Organization is moving to a unitary patent, so there'll be a single uh, European patent, but that's the first time that you have sort of a, um, a patent that's um, the same across member, member countries and you don't have an individual national government in charge. You have actually sort of a regional governing body, if that makes sense. And I figured it was worth spelling that out a little bit. Mm -hmm. But now, um, Shavita, so um, this kind of makes sense if I invent, I don't know, I'm just thinking intuitively now. So I invent a new kind of cup or something, I don't know, washing machine or something. Um, and then I apply for a patent. I mean, it's kind of clear uh, there is a piece of technology that I've either substantially improved or um, build completely new print on based on completely new principle or something but in research how does it work there i mean how do you how do you even start i mean what do you define as prior art and where where does the patent start and end and who who does get the contribution or attribution for it yeah, that is a great and very complicated question. I often use the washing machine example, although I'm quite sure that an expert in washing machines would also complicate that example um, quite quite, uh, quite a bit. But I've often thought about this because my first book was actually about um, genetic testing for breast cancer and patents on the breast cancer genes. And, and that's a, a perfect example of what you're talking about, which was uh, that there was an international collaboration looking into um, mapping and sequencing the, the breast cancer genes. And there was, you know, at the last minute, the, the collaboration fractures and one group applies for a patent. Um, and there's lots of um, acrimony as a result and also fights about who, who actually invented it. But what you have to remember about patent systems is that they are, and is that people inside patent systems, people who run patent systems and the people who um, fight in the court on behalf of um, uh, patent systems 
and also patent lawyers to some degree, will remind you that the patent system is a legal system and not a scientific system, mm -hmm. right? So things that make sense in the patent system don't necessarily make sense in the scientific system. And sometimes you'll hear the term legal fictions, and that comes up actually in the US debates around um, the patents on, the, uh, on human genes, because people are questioning how a, a human gene can be patented, and that requires a, a sort of a scaffolding, a legal scaffolding in order to make that uh, make sense. But so there are a couple of things that happen to get to, get to your question a couple of things need to happen in order to make research patentable. So the first thing is, um, which I didn't cover, is that in the US and Europe, for example, but this is generally true around the world now that there's been various harmonization, there are multiple criteria that you need to meet in order to get a patent. So that, so that means that includes, it has to be novel, it has to be, invent it has to involve what's called an inventive step, it has to be not obvious, and it has to have industrial applicability. In the European context, it also has to um, meet the or not violate the order public clause, um, which I'll, I'm happy to talk about more if, if you're interested. But those things, right? Those criteria have, may have some meaning in the scientific world, but that meaning in the scientific world doesn't really matter. The what matters is how those concepts have been defined in the legal system. In the US and in the UK and in other common law countries, it would be how those things have been defined through case precedent. And in civil law countries, it would be how the codes, for example, articulate what those things mean. Right, And those things often mean things that look quite alien to a bench scientist. Um, and so that's the first thing to keep in mind. So the, this is the beginning of what we might call legal fictions. The second thing to remember is that patent systems are staffed by examiners who have technical training, um, scientific and engineering training. And so patent offices are staffed with, with these people. And so what's interesting, there's a, there's a scholar, Kara Swanson, a historian of science who's written about this in the US and the history of the US system, how when scientists first were hired inside these patent offices, they looked at these patent applications and said, how can you say these things are novel? you know, they're obvious, right? They're not actually novel. We knew that these, you know, that we knew basic physics principles, for example, and so therefore these are not, they're not um, novel. And so the, the stakeholders of the patent system at the time, um, you know, inventors, patent lawyers, et cetera, said, if you continue to have this ridiculously high standard, nothing will be patentable and this will be bad for the economy, for economic growth. And so there was this, kind of negotiation essentially that happened and that continues to happen to this day. But it, but I tell that story because it reminds us that the patent system is a legal and, and political space essentially and social space, right? So, so the patent system is trying to figure out how to um, balance um, the criteria so that it will continue to stimulate research, but also provide an incentive to innovate and also stimulate economic growth. So those are the um, criteria that, that people inside patent systems and people making decisions in patent systems are thinking about. And that is often very, very different than what scientists are thinking about when they're thinking about um, priority and novelty. Although I will say increasingly, certainly in the US, I think it's slightly different in, in the European context. In the US, um, the and this is something I'm very interested in, ideas about priority, for example, and ideas about novelty and collaboration are increasingly getting mapped onto how patent offices think, right? Because Because the boundaries between commercial activity and purely academic activities are blurring so much that it's very difficult for you to imagine engaging in scientific research that doesn't have some kind of commercial application. So you have to think about, um, so you have to think about intellectual property. But ideas like invention, for example, um, are, are thought of in the scientific world as being huge 
um, uh, important events. Uh, and in the legal world are seen not as those kinds of, you know, they're almost seen like, you know, as one scientist told me um, when it came to the breast cancer genes, he was frustrated. He's a British scientist who was frustrated that this American company had applied for the patent. And he said, you know, this American company just put the last brick in the wall. But that was enough because what the patent system recognizes is, first of all, the last brick, but also the first person now in both the U.S. and in Europe, the first person to file a patent is how priority gets established, not necessarily um, the inventor and in the way we tend to think about it in, in the scientific world. But just to like slide into more the open science, because um, so if the priority is not established on um, who actually did it first, so um, can you explain why are people so afraid, not afraid, but kind of concerned about if we publish uh, preprints or if we disclose data, uh, if we do collaborative work in the open, kind of, uh, we will not be able to apply for patents? The reason that people are concerned about that and the reason that that's a real issue is that uh, that becomes part of what's called the prior art. So it can be used to invalidate a patent application, essentially. Mm -hmm. So if someone applies for a patent on X and the information is already out there, then the patent official, the patent examiner will find that and say, look, it's already available. Or as I said, often, especially if it's a really important area of research, there's, a, there's, um, some kind of dispute. And if there's some kind of dispute, it may not be the patent examiner who finds that, but somebody else who finds that. You know, you find, for example, in the debate about CRISPR, uh, which are very highly lucrative patents, that they're going back to lab notebooks, uh, right? To sort of establish priority, but also to establish what is known, right? There's There are timelines about what who knew what when and if you could do it in eukaryotes as opposed to prokaryotes how, to what extent should that count as um us knowing that it could be you know if you know it can be done in prokaryotes does that is it assumed that it will work in eukaryotes those kinds of things if it's in the public domain then affect um uh, your ability to get a patent which is of course only relevant if you want a patent right not relevant if you don't actually want to patent. The problem is, I think, in a more broad sense, is that as science has become more commercialized and as universities have become more commercialized, as I was saying earlier, it becomes very difficult to prevent um, even university researchers from having to deal with these kinds of pressures when they didn't have to before. Heard George Church uh, saying, for example, he's applying for patents for all his uh, well, inventions or, yeah, I guess inventions then. Um, not so much to make money with, but to protect this from becoming commercialized by others. Um, so like using the patent as a reverse way of protecting open science, almost. In, well, in, oh, like the public, uh, public sphere, public interest. Um, hmm. I wonder... What's your take on that? <laughs> right. I mean, so I think it, it, it is um, another term for this is defensive patenting. Ah, okay. Um, and it, it has also, you know, occasionally I've heard this actually also came up in the breast cancer gene case, which tells you something, right? <clears throat> it tends to come up in arenas that are, again, highly lucrative, highly... Um, uh, sometimes highly controversial, but also very high profile. And so a lot of people are working on the area. For me, the, the concern that I have with that sort of thing, I, I've seen it where, for example, in the breast cancer case, there were British researchers who applied for patents and then said, we're deliberately doing this because there's this American company who owns most of the patents and this gives us a foothold to fight them. Uh, it also will ensure, it will also provide the UK National Health Service with a foothold to fight the American company. And it did ultimately ensure, give them more power in doing that. So I've seen it used in a way that at least I, it, that fits with my personal 
moral and political interest. So on that level, I can say, well, you know, I liked the way that it was used. But I've seen this emerging in the CRISPR arena, um, you know, in a variety of different ways that make me, that to me reveal some of the problems with this, uh, which is um, another thing that's happening in the context of CRISPR is that the Broad Institute has, of course, a number of patents, and they are then um, in their licensing agreements controlling, using the licensing agreements then to control how CRISPR gets used. So they say, for example, it can't be used for the human germline, it can't be used in gene drives, it can't be used to uh, produce tobacco plants, more efficient tobacco plants, et cetera. So again, those happen to be things that I too, from my own personal perspective, think are a good thing. However, what concerns me is putting that power in the hands of a private actor. Even though that private actor may be a university um, professor in the case of George Church or a nonprofit institution in the case of the Broad Institute, they're still private actors that don't have to adhere to the rules that public actors do of transparency and accountability. So we are then beholden to what they, to their moral and political interests, their concerns, and we don't actually know how they came up with that set of criteria, right? On some level, the gene drives and the human germline seems like it makes sense. It wouldn't, for me, it wouldn't have necessarily tweaked this issue uh, because there's a lot of controversy about both of those things. But the tobacco plants for me was the tip off, right? I thought to myself, I mean, I too don't think that we should be smoking more tobacco. However, why, why did the Broad Institute include that in its licensing agreements? Why should we, we are essentially placing trust in the market player and the market actor to make responsible decisions. I think market players should make responsible decisions, but I also think that this is the role that government has been entrusted, we entrust our governments to engage in, right, is to represent the public interest, to engage in appropriate deliberation in order to make uh, decisions and policies in the public interest and to do so in a way that's transparent and accountable that George Church or the Broad Institute or the British scientist I mentioned in the context of the BRCA genes um, are not engaged in that kind of decision making, right? So that's is where my ambivalence kind of comes from, uh, is that I think it requires us to trust those market actors, the patent holders, and sometimes perhaps they're trustworthy, and, but sometimes they're not. And it essentially absolves the government from responsibility uh, in these really key areas where I don't think we should be doing that. But okay, so patent, um, so to patent or not to patent. So uh, done if you do, done if you don't somehow. Uh yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think in our excitement about the potential for science to produce innovation that will help society, we have uh, accelerated and expanded our patent systems dramatically. Um, I forget the exact statistic, but it's something like it took 200 years to issue the first, uh, I think it's 5 million patents, and then it took 10 years to issue the next 5 million patents. Um, I believe this is for the US, um, but there are similar numbers around the world, right? Which is that the, the number of patents has just accelerated, I would, I would say since, you know, the birth of biotech, so, you know, 70s and 80s. And so that to me is more the issue, which is we have now kind of shifted to trying to patent everything, patent more incrementally, and we're overwhelming patent offices. Uh, and the incentive structures within patent offices are such that it's very hard for examiners to be really picky about what, they, um, what they're rejecting and, um, and how they're looking at the language of a patent and it's hard for them to throw it back and they get a lot of pressure from the patent holders. At the same time, university scientists uh, universities themselves are under tremendous pressure to increase the number of patents. Uh, and so you have this kind of squeeze. At the same time, 
you know, sometimes those patents are totally useless, but, but it makes it really difficult to both um, have open, more open science that is more collaboration. It completely shapes um, the structure's collaborations, but it also makes it more, any of the resulting innovation becomes more expensive because you have to deal with uh, what scholars have called patent thickets. So you have to deal with lots and lots of patents on a single drug, for example, or another kind of technology. And it is very, it not only kind of <clears throat> um, excludes some scientists who don't even want to deal with that stuff, but it also makes the resulting um, innovation super expensive. So, so this is the world that we're dealing with, which means to me that we need to be thinking about um, increasing what's called patent quality. That is, you know, to go back to what you said before about the washing machine, right? Maybe we need to be thinking, we need to have higher bars for what constitutes patentable inventions, that it shouldn't be just really incremental invention, um, <clears throat> that we need to be considering other modes for providing the kinds of incentives to innovate. I've always been a skeptic that intellectual, that patents are the sole way in which people are incentivized to innovate. I, I just don't think that's true. Um, and so there are a number of ways I think that we can um, try to address this problem because, because to my mind, and I think a number of scientists see this as well, this, this structure has gotten a little bit out of control and it ultimately means that um, certainly in a place like the United States, I know that the structure is different in the European context because of the structure of healthcare systems, but in the U.S., what you see now, finally, we have people waking up to the fact that the, the mess that we see these patent systems in is having real impacts on healthcare, right, because people can't afford um, the treatments. Um, and there are some, there have been some suggestions, I, I am... I'm not sure what I think about this, but there have been some suggestions that maybe we should think um, we should differentiate patents more. Um, so different fields might have different requirements. Um, I think that's a little bit more difficult to implement, but I think that there are a lot of re really interesting alternatives um, that we need to be considering. The problem, of course, is that there are very strong interests in favor of a really robust patent system but uh, but for me anyway, my central concern is ensuring that the public interest is really um, respected when it comes to science and technology, and that um, you know uh, the public has the opportunity to benefit, that it remains publicly legitimate, and I think. We are quickly reaching a point where where our systems of intellectual property are no longer fulfilling those goals. What you're saying kind of makes me think of some of the fundamental things that we talk about in open science. And one of those is that science predominantly is done from public funding and should be, I guess, for a public good in some way. Whereas, not that there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with patents, but it is more of an individual commercial capitalist game. And I feel like those are two very different value systems. And I feel like open science is is kind of something that is generally trying to, or responsible research and innovation is trying to address that mismatch between science being essentially collectivist and a public good and uh, the world we kind of live in, which is essentially individual, or the Western world anyway, essentially individualist and capitalist. And there's this, it doesn't quite meet, and I think open science in many ways is trying to bridge that gap. No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. One of the things that I would point out is that one of the things that I've seen in the U.S. and that I think has happened in Europe, I don't know if I, I didn't say this at the outset, but you probably know all of my research thus far, not the current work, but all of the research thus far that I've done has been comparative between the U.S. and Europe. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time in, in Europe and, and know a fair bit, um, although I guess it's getting a little bit dated. But, but what I would say about this point that you're making, which I think is really important, is that in the U.S. context, especially in the in the history, in the 
um, wake of the 1980 Bayh-Dole Act, which was a piece of legislation in the U.S., which essentially allowed universities to, um, it provided clarity, essentially. So it said, if you receive money from the federal government, then you can patent the results of that research. The government does not have an interest. The government isn't going to patent those things. University can, universities can patent those things. Now you see in Europe, there are a number of countries that have adopted some similar kinds of uh, <clears throat> pieces of legislation. And what happened in the, in the aftermath of that piece of legislation is you see universities essentially saying that in order <clears throat> for science to serve the public good, it must be commercialized, right? So they tell a slightly different version of what you're saying, which is a sort of strict separation, right? They say, you know, you want to produce the public good, you're working on a cancer um, compound or trying to understand cancer um, or human proteins or whatever it is, in order for that to reach the public, the primary avenue through which that happens is the marketplace. We will facilitate that. So you have universities all over the world, giant research universities like my own, of course, have these large technology transfer offices where we have you know, lots of lawyers who work with science departments to try to encourage them to patent the results of their work. The problem that has arisen uh, in the US is that the conflict has reemerged in a different way. So you have a number of universities. Um, right now, uh, UCLA is in the news, for example, because it has this drug, Extandi, um, which was developed at a, at a UCLA lab and then is now a very expensive, I believe, prostate cancer drug. And so people say, how is this, in the, how is this science in the public interest, right? How is the, um, um, you know, the university is essentially um, uh, making it hard for people to get access to a really important drug as opposed to making it easier for people to get access to a really important drug. This, the first incident of this was many years ago at Yale in the context of an HIV AIDS drug and a student activist movement emerged that now has become something called the called Universities Allied for Essential Medicines. It's now a worldwide student group. And they pre were able to pressure Yale to change the licensing agreement with Bristol-Myers Squibb to reduce the price of the AIDS drug. However, these are that kind of case is a unique case. Most universities, like my own, still still adhere to this idea that you're serving the public good by commercializing your invention. They don't talk about the resulting price of that invention. Or they'll say, any royalties that come from your from a license that we might make on the basis of your patent come back to the university and help education, right? So that's in the public good. So the so the meaning of the public good. And the relationship between science and the public could have shifted over time. I think that what's happening now is some sort of reckoning, certainly in the US, but also to some degree in um, countries, you know, in so what southern countries are in the global south, that is, you know, if you're producing a malaria drug, but the people in the country can't afford it, like who cares, <laughs> right? Like, how is that the public good? So those kinds of questions are increasingly arising what this to go back to what you were asking about church the what has happened is that the problems are still only being solved in an ad hoc local level as opposed to getting back to the level of national legislation which is where things like the Bayh-Dole Act and its analogs in Europe are actually being decided right um, and so we haven't really confronted those contradictions in the way I think that we should, but the pressure is growing. Um, and my hope is, and this is where open science comes in, because to me, open science is um, as much a way of doing science as it is a social movement and opposition to this increased commercialization, that, the, that scientists themselves are saying, wait a second, commercialization is actually not the way to um, 
fulfill the public good in the way that I had envisioned when I was a young PhD student or master's student, for example. Um, is there a way around the patents now, basically? I mean, uh, if you go to a normal research lab and you ask people, um, oh, so do you have anything here that you're working on that we can uh, patent? Uh, in most cases, people will be just looking at you like, uh, no, nah, just doing basic research. So there is now um, a whole army of in people who go and scout for technology in in the labs and convince people you can patent this you can you can do something with that and so on it's coming it's not there yet completely but do you think it's a way of turning this around i mean you're saying open science being a social movement helping that but actually when we talk to people they're very happy to do open science as long as it doesn't hurt them right um and if the um kind of financial security is not there and it's provided by patents one way or the other. How do we work around it? Yeah, I mean, so I'll just say on the army of people who come in to, I'm, I have for a long time, given my own research background and comparative interest, wanted to do some sort of comparative study looking, <clears throat> comparing, you know, labs in the US and analogs in Europe and elsewhere to see how the sh culture shifts, right? Because because what you originally said about um, basic scientists saying no, we don't have anything patentable, I think uh, has been ha happened in the U.S. But there was a process by which they were convinced that they had patentable subject matter of some kind, and they should go through this process. So I think that's super fascinating, and I'm interested in that. But that's that's an aside. So in terms of what people can do, um, you know, so there, I, I'd say there are a couple of uh, model. So the first is there are these open science models. Um, there's the Structural Genomics Consortium, which you've probably heard about, that's trying to engage in an open science model. There's the BioBricks Initiative that's also trying to um, do a more open science model. And those are interesting. Uh, the Structural Genomics Consortium is interesting in part uh, because they are trying to uh, really get at the commercialization dimension because they include, it isn't just universities, it's also companies, right? Mm -hmm. So any um, potential barriers that might emerge from the um, corporate side, they're trying to essentially kind of capture, right? Um, and it seems like if the first effort is essentially increasing science, increasing our knowledge of human proteins, uh, it is successful on that score. Um, it has, um, you know, there is a governance structure by which members of the consortium make determinations about what are their targets, and they decide this co collectively, you only have the right to determine that when you participate. The benefit for members is that they don't necessarily want to be on the outside trying to essentially duplicate the work of people on the inside. So, so it, for efficiency purposes, it's, it, there's a reason for people to participate. So there's some evidence that from a scientific perspective, it is increasing science. The question that I have um, is whether or not it will actually, what will happen once there are actually clear products? Uh, will the consortium fall apart? Will um, companies who want to develop those drugs pull out of the consortium as they did, for example, in the breast cancer case when they could, you know, in that case, of course, it was as soon as they found a gene, they knew they could make a test and they pulled out of the consortium, right? So, so these are the questions that I have about um, what it then means for innovation, right? I mean, it, you can have open science, which increases the storehouse of human knowledge, which I don't want to diminish. I think that's very important. But but I also think that if you're working on a structural genomics, ultimately the purpose is to make better drugs. And if those drugs are not available, too expensive, et cetera, then to me, the open innovation part of it is lost. So that's perhaps a depressing tale, but, but I think one could imagine maybe innovating on the structural genomics consortium model to, to capture that piece, the next piece, right, which is the drug development piece. The other thing that people have, the other model that has been tested 
in little bits that I think has some potential but hasn't been tested in a huge way is the prize model. So the prize model is uh, essentially it providing some incentive, a financial incentive, but not to someone who um, is able or group or groups who are able to achieve an important um, innovation in the public interest. Usually, if you're talking about governments who might fund this, that would be the idea. So it could be an essential medicine of some kind. In India, for example, uh, they have grand challenges around sanitation and other priorities, climate change, et cetera. And so they say, if you're able to innovate, um, you know, develop a technology, um, I think in the Indian model, I don't know that they've outlawed patents necessarily, but they have a prize structure. And what they do is they also promise a certain level of government procurement uh, if you're able to reach it. So it's essentially kind of a prize, right? And there is some assumption that there's that there's an open innovation model, right? Um, and in those prize, and there are lots of prize systems, some are government sponsored, some are not governmental government sponsored, but the idea is that there are tiers. And so you don't necessarily have to get all the way, you can get part of the way and you get some kind of financial benefit and whatever those financial benefits are, they're usually assumed to be many times the level of investment that you put into doing the actual research. So if you're thinking about innovation in the public interest, I think those are really interesting models that could be capitalized on in different ways. Um, and that we have now, we're starting to see India, I think is a great example of one. Um, I, I believe there are others that we could study to see sort of how you could innovate uh, innovate beyond it. But I think this idea that you get a prize and then the intellectual property is open, but the prize is enough for you to put in the initial investment uh, is, is one way to think about the innovation side of things. I think to get, um, there's a much lower bar for open science because then everybody can benefit because they can say, yeah, we don't want to duplicate research and we can collaborate. I think the rub comes when there's a when you sort of have two roads. It's like, oh, I could commercialize this and make a ton of money and have a monopoly or I can, um, you know, essentially um, work in the public interest and make sure it's widely accessible. And that bifurcation is is an is one that we only I think relatively recently realizes one right as I've been saying, you know, for so long the assumption was that the only way we could ensure access was through commercialization, and I think now we're realizing that's not necessary. That's not only true. Commercialization can also can be a barrier towards access. I mean, you were mentioning the um, the expensive uh, drug against um, prostate cancer. Well, I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter which drug. Um, any of those new uh, targeted um, drugs um, are just super expensive. And the argument there is basically that the pricing is so high because development of the drug is so expensive, right? And when you think about it, they say like 15 years of uh, research and uh, all these clinical trials and so on, I mean, it's 10 billion euros or something. I've heard as a number somewhere. Um, I mean, not, no price would be that big. So, um, well, so I would say two things. So the first is, in some of these cases, the prizes are pretty big. Okay. The, the, the second thing I would say is that, of course, it's impossible to know what the real cost of drug development is. The only people who know the actual costs have an incentive to inflate those costs. Um, we could imagine more transparency. Again, this is the role of government, more transparency in getting a sense of the cost of drug development. I still think even if we were to have some government mandated transparency, there would still be effort made to inflate those costs. Um, however, um, we also know that the costs of drug development are going down. And they're going down in part because you know, nowadays when you have big data, machine learning, algorithms, AI, they're, you know, they're doing a lot of cor initial correlation is done through machine. It's much quicker than it used to be. 
and much cheaper, therefore, than it used to be. And so um, a um, civil society um, uh, actor who's worked in the global access to medicine space actually came to Michigan a couple of weeks ago, and she, and she noted that what is um, interesting about this debate now is that they've shifted, drug companies have shifted from an argument about how much the cost of drug development is to an argument about value-based pricing. That is, you know, it's really important for you to have a prostate cancer drug, and that's why we're charging a lot of money for it. From, again, a public interest perspective and a moral perspective, that is a much weaker leg to stand on. And from an equity and economics perspective, you can say, listen, it didn't cost you much money, so let's, let's have a prize and, you know, give you, give you some um, remuneration. Um, but at the end of the day, we are interested in, in the public interest. And certainly the public, part of the, I don't want to um, diminish the fact that part of the public interest is in a uh, robust industrial sector, the jobs and the science that industries do, absolutely that's the case. But I think that we've inflated this so much now that we're doing so at the expense of um, publics and at a moment where there's increasing economic inequality, even in Europe, you know, these are the kinds of things we need to be um, taking more seriously. And so we need, you know, when you move to value-based pricing, I think to myself, okay, well, this, you know, this is sort of an opening, I think, for these kinds of conversations, unwittingly perhaps, but it's an opening mm -hmm. for these kinds of conversations. It's or give more power to governments and citizens and scientists. I, th I find it's uh, kind of interesting, uh, just thinking about the analogy of uh, what's happening in the open access um, kind of area because uh, I mean also now that uh, all of a sudden the governments in Europe at least uh, came together and threatening well, also in the US threatening the publishing industry with um, well we're going to change something here all of a sudden things are possible that was not possible before yeah there is potential for change in ways we don't realize there was just a study there or some analysis that was published yesterday I'm sure you've probably talked on the podcast about University of California telling Elsevier to take a hike uh, because of the costs of, um, of, of access. And then it turns out, apparently, that University of California researchers have not been hurt. And in fact, they're not actually even, because there was sort of a workaround if you wanted to access articles. And there hasn't been a significant outcry, um, which, which the, what's important to me anyway, someone who thinks about political economy, is that it reduces, I mean, Elsevier sort of comes into these situations with an assumption about its level of power, and moments like that demonstrate that it doesn't have the kind of power that it thinks it does, which provides open, you know, which then provides governments and citizens um, and scientists with an opportunity to say, look, there are other interests that have to be considered in this, and it's not just your, your you can't just say that, you know, your interest is the like we're science science at University of California is gonna die because you're not paying Elsevier mm. a lot of money, right? Well, we didn't talk about the University of California, but we I mean there are several countries in Europe who <laughs> say to Elsevier right. like and nothing happened. I mean nothing yeah. added to the research in those countries. Right. right. I mean like the entirety of Germany was just Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of went, No, no not going yeah. anymore. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, again, to go back to the notion of a social movement, I don't know the extent to which individual scientists on a daily basis, I mean, just like, you know, a lot of my, because I'm at the interface of these two communities, it's funny because policy students have often run from science and I'm like, no, no, it's important. And then science students have run from policy or, or politics. And yet when I think about it, it's also, you know, for a variety of things, I think, I think that there has been an awakening of, of various kinds in the scientific community. And part of that awakening is about political power um, that they have, that the structures that are shaping their daily lives that frustrate them, that they can actually work to change them. Um, and, and in these matters of intellectual property, whether it's copyrights or patents, is maybe a first moment, a first line of that kind of awakening. And that's really interesting to me. 
Well, I mean, one of our first interviews with Ivan Aransky, uh, he actually said something that's been ringing my ears since then. Um, well, if you, uh, you're part of a professional system, you're, you're shaping it, uh, you made it, you're making it. It's not like someone makes it for you. Um, yeah. I would like to just go back to one last thing, just to say um, something you said in the beginning, the inclusive innovation. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, so there, there are perhaps differences between what I might mean by it and what um, uh, what meaning it's taking. And, and in, in a lot of ways, it my interest in it lies at the conflict that we've been talking about, and it's actually helpful to me to think through it. So there has been now for um, at least a decade an increasing effort to target innovation towards um, the poor um, and with, I think, the idea that the economic growth models uh, have left a lot of people behind. And of course, that's true in southern countries as much as it's true uh, in the West. And so the idea has been, let's focus on uh, the poor, these are, there are actually markets that we can take advantage of, you know, we can, for example, the, one of the iconic examples is rebranding shampoo or, or repackaging it in small sachets. Um, and, uh, what's interesting is that it isn't just about innovation coming from the West to, um, people in Southern countries, but it, the idea is also that it should be inclusive also in terms of, um, innovators from uh, these countries. And so there's a, some combination of both of those things and an, and an effort from international institutions uh, to foster policies that are more inclusive, that foster inclusive innovation, but there's also funding for these kinds of initiatives that are coming from international institutions and now national governments, as well as now from the corporate sector. And this is where it starts to get a little bit hairy, I think, and where some of the conflicts come out. Because just like the story that we have told ourselves about intellectual property systems and the public interest, I think you see similar things emerging when it comes to inclusive innovation systems. So inclusive innovation in it in 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 it in the abstract sounds like exactly what we need. It isn't just about for um, innovation for the poor, which we need, but also innovation by the poor, which we also need, right? However, in practice, what it has been has been an export of a particular kind of innovation, which is tied to the commercial sector, and in particular, um, tied to a very Silicon Valley kind of idea of what constitutes innovation. And so it, I think, narrows the scope of what that is a little bit. You know, the assumption is that in order for it to be innovative, it has to be commercializable, it has to be scalable, um, it has to be tangible, um, it often has to be patentable. And uh, what that does, or what my concern is, is that what that does is it not only limits the scope of innovation dramatically, it excludes a lot of potential alternatives because it's, it, you know, when we're, for example, talking about, um, you know, India, for example, which is where I'm doing a lot of my research, you know, India already, just like every place, India already has a lot of innovation systems, indigenous innovation systems, right? Um, and those get excluded and kind of further erased or and in some cases kind of denigrated uh, because they don't fit in this new context. And that, I think, ultimately ends up hurting the poor and hurting, and I'm particularly interested in women in that case, um, it ends up hurting women in, in, in particular ways. You know, the kinds of inventions that tend to get a lot of attention tend to be ones that are produced by men um, uh, because in some basic ways, innovation systems um, are masculine. Uh, and so uh, this ends up hurting, I think, not both poor women, but women more generally and excluding other potential alternative systems. And so, so I'm still, you know, doing the research and looking at a variety of different cases, but that's kind of where, where that project is going is thinking about 
what these systems are doing and then and then envisioning what inclusive innovation could look like if we had a more expansive definition of what inclusion could be um, and what the public interest could be. Uh, and I'm also thinking about the analogy to citizen science. <laughs> Let me put it about to come out of my mouth. Yeah, because this is something also um, we're talking a lot about evolving citizens in science and citizen science. And the idea is uh, very good. However, very often it's um, it's just asking for data basically um, right. under the kind of brand name of citizen science, which actually, frankly, citizens are also happy to provide if yeah. it's for a good purpose. Uh, we learned from our survey that uh, we did that. But, interesting, they're happy if it's for the public good. They're exactly. not happy if it's to be commercialized. So if you're going to take their data and then just make money off them, they don't like that at all. They. Right. We, as, as a public, don't like that at all. Um, as a scientist, don't like it, as a public, don't like it. <laughs> do that. Okay. Yeah, I think, the, I think that's a really good analogy, and I want to think through the comparison more. Because in the citizen science space, one of the things that I've also noticed is that, right, it's, it, it's that they're asked to provide data, but they're not necessarily asked about what, scientific priority should be or what the directions of science should be, right? And the same thing is true in the inclusive innovation space. There's, you know, often surveys and they'll say, oh, listen, there's a need for, for example, for disposable sanitary pads, people, there's a need, right? But nobody ever asks, like, how do women in India you know, manage their menstruation? Sure. Do they see it as a problem, right? So the, so it's always it's already structured in such a way that if you ask a poor woman here, would you like a disposable sanitary pad? She'll be like, okay, fine, sure. But, but, uh, but it, but the prior question doesn't get asked. And the, and also the next question doesn't get asked, which is, for example, what happens to that disposable sanitary pad and is it actually good for mm -hmm. society, for the environment, et cetera. Right. So it has those kinds of, it, it serves, it sounds great, and the sounding great gives it more power in the world, but then it, because it sounds great, it ends up hiding all of these um, problems and other ways in which you might be able to do inclusive innovation or citizen science. Mm. Yeah, I have to think of Bill Gates' toilets. And... Oh, yeah, no, that's going to be one of my cases too, the toilets. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because it's yeah. amazing what kind of constructions the, the man came up with. Oh god. And it's yeah. not even I mean there's the Bill Gates toilet, but honestly, it is just the whole I think mean, toilet period because I will never forget I use this this example frequently in a rural part of Gujarat in West India, Northwest India, there's a village, nobody has toilets, then there's one house, they have three toilets, and as far as I could tell, zero of those toilets were actually being used as toilets. So now you have these large structures, permanent structures, in one compound, not being used as toilet. I mean, the whole, you know, kind of edifice of why are we doing this, what are the benefits, gets completely lost, but we can tick a box in the sustainable development goals to say, oh, look, we've increased sanitation, we've increased the number of toilets. Yeah, but I mean, I, I feel like, and I mean, obviously, um, this is a, a, a wider problem, but there's a certain... I guess you could call it like a colonialist idea here that, you know, uh, we know better and uh, um, we're sort of helping, which doesn't seem to be very innovative in itself. And like you say, they're not listening. They're just going in and saying, oh, look, we have these clever things. We're going to give them to you as opposed to, I mean, for instance, yeah, toilets are great and everything, but they also use a lot of water. So maybe they're not actually... You know, maybe there's a different system that could actually be more environmentally friendly, but nobody thinks to ask that. Yeah. Yes, and um, I mean, what's interesting to me about one of the things—I mean, it is a fantastically interesting arena—but one of the things that's interesting to me is exactly what you said, which is these. This move towards inclusive innovation is framed as though it is. I mean, they're not explicitly anti-colonialist, but they are essentially arguing that the market is a representation of democratic um, preferences, right? right? And it, and of course, not only that, but you're they're also valorizing indigenous entrepreneurs, and therefore 
how can you label it colonialist when this is all grassroots and about the local marketplace? So, so that's what's interesting to me is that it actually, the ideology that we assume to be top down is somehow taking a different form and is quiet and yet is completely shaped, still shaping in exactly the same ways um, the, the, the dynamics of innovation in ways that make it very hard for us to find those alternatives, which is what we're claiming to do. Frankly, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> No, I mean, that was pretty comprehensive, I think. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, uh, yeah. dear uh, listeners, yeah. we'll be back in two yeah. weeks. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, this was the Orion Open Science Podcast brought to you by the Orion Project, recorded at the Max Delbock Center of Molecular Medicine in Berlin, Germany. You can find out more about what we're doing and follow us on Twitter at OOSP underscore OrionPod. If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us at orion at mdc-berlin.de. The music was produced and performed by Fabio De Miguel, and the sound mixing was done by Paolo Oliveira. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>